Heads up, as usual, this show includes spoilers. You may recall in the first episode of this season, I told you a story about one of my trips to the Netherlands. So it seems fitting for this last episode of the season to tell you another one. It was, I think, 2003. I'd been in Amsterdam for a couple of weeks, and like you sometimes do as a tourist, I needed a break from feeling like a foreigner. So I popped into the city's film museum to watch a flick where everyone spoke English. The Marx Brothers, Duck Soup. Oh, Your Excellency! We've been expecting you. If you've seen it, you know the first scene is Groucho Marx firing off one-liners at his favorite straight woman, Margaret Dumont. Never mind that stuff. Take a card. Card? What'll I do with the card? You can keep it. I've got 51 left. Now, what were you saying? It's still so great. In my seat at the back of the theater, I was cracking up. But self-consciously, because none of the Dutchmen around me were laughing. Smiling, but not laughing. And it didn't take long to figure out why. Groucho's gags were practically all puns, peppered with American slang and innuendo. Because I feel you are the most able statesman in all Fredonia. Well, that covers a lot of ground. Say, you cover a lot of ground yourself. You better beat it. I hear they're going to tear you down and put up an office building where you're standing. You can leave in a taxi. If you can't get a taxi, you can leave in a huff. If that's too soon, you can leave in a minute and a huff. You know you haven't stopped talking since I came here? You must have been vaccinated with a phonograph needle. Now, Amsterdamers speak great English, but this stuff is almost too dense for me to keep up with. Dutch folks were smiling because they could sense Groucho was saying funny things. But what exactly did those things mean? Then, of course, when the silent, clownish Harpo marks appeared, wordlessly miming a phone conversation using bike horns, the audience fell to pieces. Slapstick is the universal language. You know, I'd be lost without a telephone. Now, why am I telling you this story? Because I've never felt more like that Dutch audience than when I watched a 1997 Chinese comedy from the director Feng Xiaogang called The Dream Factory. There were moments of physical comedy I totally got. But those were quickly followed by dry, ironic dialogue. And I couldn't quite figure out the irony. There were obvious historical references, but I didn't know the history. And then at the end, there's a melodramatic turn and characters started weeping. Was that sincere or part of a joke? It felt like a puzzle, but one it seemed really important to figure out. Because in 1997, the Dream Factory was such a hit in China, it changed the country's entire movie industry. And whether you're aware of it or not, the global movie industry along with it. I'm Rico Galliano, and from the curated streaming service Movie, welcome back to the Movie Podcast. Movie's the best place to see beautiful hand-picked cinema from around the globe. On this show, we tell you the stories behind those films and any other movies with stories worth telling. This first season, we've been calling Lost in Translation. Every week, we learn about a different international culture through the lens of a movie they loved, specifically a film that was a huge phenomenon in just that one country. And the Dream Factory was huge, not just in terms of the money it made, which was pretty big for the time, but for the mark it left on the culture. There's a couple of rituals that are associated with the Chinese New Year. 
But starting after 1997, a new ritual emerged, which was the whole family goes to the theater and watches the new Feng Shaogang film. That's UCLA professor Michael Berry, and he's one of several people I talked to to figure out how this, to me, inscrutable flick made holiday moviegoing as important in China as giving holiday presents and created a blockbuster movie season that easily rivals Hollywood's. So listen up, because we're going to try to translate The Dream Factory. Simply put, The Dream Factory is a droll comedy. But it was born out of a kind of financial desperation. And to understand why requires a quick history lesson. Let me take you back to June 30th, 1997. That's the day Britain officially handed over its former colony, Hong Kong, to the government of mainland China. At the ceremony in Hong Kong, while Prince Charles himself looked on, the Union Jack came down and the Chinese flag went up. And it's hard to remember now, but there was a lot of hope China had been opening its doors to the world. It had introduced market forces into its economy that seemed to be lifting millions of its people out of poverty. And there was a sense that democratic Hong Kong might actually make mainland China less authoritarian instead of the reverse. For a lot of people, it was an exciting time. But if you were in mainland China's movie industry, it was maybe not so exciting. China's film market was shrinking by the early 1990s, losing out to TV and video markets and also other alternative entertainment options. That's Ying Zhu speaking to me from Hong Kong. She teaches film at the City University of New York and her new book's called Hollywood in China. You know, in the U.S. too, in the 1950s, we had all of a sudden this onslaught of television. So, so that came much later, decades later, threatening uh, the livelihood of Chinese film industry in the 1990s. What's more, China's film industry was having a hard time with the new market-style economy. Before, film workers had what folks called iron rice bowl jobs. They got paid by the state no matter how well their movies did. But now they were expected to start turning some profits and people just weren't paying to see domestic movies. And so the money-strapped studios kind of were compelled to adopt a number of measures, including downsizing, to try to turn the profits around. Uh, and then several entrepreneurial studios even ventured into restaurant and discotheque business. And when that didn't work, state regulators did what had been unthinkable. In exchange for a cut of the profits, they started importing Hollywood films. So Hollywood was banned starting from 1950s all the way to actually mid-1990s. So we talk about several decades without any Hollywood films in China. So this is the time when Hollywood was allowed to re-enter China. And Hollywood quickly resuscitated the Chinese market, but also quickly overtook the Chinese market. For Chinese studios, it was a perfect economic storm. Competition from TV and video, fewer government subsidies, and now audiences flocking more and more to see these Hollywood blockbusters and even less to domestic flicks. Which together decimated domestic productions and revenues. So the depressed market for domestic pictures demanded drastic measures. And for ideas, the industry started looking to the way more successful movie industry right next door in its new sister state of Hong Kong. 
This is a scene from Security Unlimited, a 1981 flick from Hong Kong comedy legends The Hui Brothers. In it, two dim-witted security guards know a big gang of bad guys are hiding behind a door, so the guards try to make it sound like they've got an army of cops backing them up. Which is hilarious because the door is made of rice paper and the bad guys on the other side can see exactly what the guards are doing. Since the early 80s and even before, Hong Kong's film industry had been releasing family-friendly action comedies just like this. All at a certain time of year. It's the Lunar New Year, sometimes referred to as Spring Festival, which usually occurs sometime around late February, early March. Uh, the date varies from year to year. That's Michael Berry again. In addition to being a professor, he's director of UCLA's Center for Chinese Studies. That's where the whole country goes on vacation. Everybody packs up and returns to their ancestral or familial homes. Starting in the 80s, you really see the commercialization of that time frame amped up and more and more production companies are very consciously marketing their films to be rolled out specifically during that time frame, you know, to maximize their profits, essentially. Now in the U.S., we're used to this sort of seasonal marketing, right? Studios release their crowd-pleasing features around summer and Christmas vacations. But Ying Zhu says, unlike Hong Kong, <laughs> mainland China didn't have a blockbuster movie season. In fact, actually, cinemas in mainland China used to close down for the Lunar New Year week. So if you can imagine that, once upon a time. But in 1995, China's industry got its first inkling that maybe it'd make sense to keep theaters open that time of year. The first Hong Kong film that entered Chinese market that announced itself as a New Year's film came out in 1995. So that is Jackie Chang's now famous Rondo in the Bronx. What's up? You got the problem? Yeah, if you were young in 95, you likely remember Rumble in the Bronx. After years of cult success outside Hong Kong, it was the movie that made Jackie Chan a global action comedy sensation. So, you're a tough guy, huh? And mainland China was no different. The movie made more than any imported film in Chinese history more even than Hollywood flicks. And was billed as a New Year celebration film when it was released uh, in China. So this is actually the first time the Chinese film industry kind of realizes, oh, so there is a, such a notion of timing the film release with a certain period to maximize box office receipts. And that's when two Chinese industry players sat down to do exactly that. The result would be the Dream Factory. You know, it was an elaborate series of discussions that led to that. Uh, the film, uh, The Dream Factory, was produced by Beijing Film Studio, which is one of the state-owned film studios, and one of these private companies called Beijing Forbidden City Studio. And so these two kind of mega players in the industry started to have a series of meetings about creating a He Sui Pian, or New Year's film model. On the docket, not just how and when to release China's first homegrown New Year film, but also what the plot of the film should be. It had to be something that would appeal to all the demographics in China's enormous audience. They're actually having extensive meetings about what kind of film is going to work. They're, they're actually bringing in investors to these meetings, not just creatives. Usually if you have, say, uh, 
a screenwriting room. It's all screenwriters that are all discussing these works. In this case, you had investors in the room. You had uh, the head of a theater chain that was invited to participate in there. Oh, man. Like, it's not bad enough for screenwriters just having to deal with, you know, executive producers. Now you've got the investors sitting in the room with you as you're trying to come up with a story idea. Is it like that early in the process? Yes. And so they had investors. They had the head of a theater chain. I read that at one point they even had uh, they invited a ticket seller from one of the big movie chains to come and give her input just about what kind of films were, would be successful. Like the person sitting in the box office? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's a big deal for her. Yeah. Eventually, all these folks came up with a single consensus concept, one designed to acknowledge many people's anxieties about the new market-style economy. Mainland China's first New Year film, they decided, should be a comedy about unemployed factory workers looking for a job. And the studio decided the best guy to turn that elevator pitch into an actual movie was a young TV director named Feng Xiaogang. Feng had actually been quite active, not only as a director, but even more so as a screenwriter, and had gotten a lot of accolades for his snappy and witty comedy uh, and works like A Beijinger in New York. I actually was in China as a foreign student when uh, A Beijinger in New York was first premiered, and if you've ever been to China, you know how crowded that country is. And every night when that series played on TV, the streets were empty because everyone was at home with their eyes glued to the television set. Now, Beijinger in New York was unusual for Fung at the time. It was a bleak drama. But even his TV comedies were pretty edgy. They were sarcastic social satires, sometimes written with another famous satirist, one of China's best-selling novelists, Wang Shuo. Wang Shuo, his long-term collaborator, his, his, his novels, his writings uh, very much captured this kind of urban disillusionment in China, particularly in Beijing. Some of his novels are called hooligan literature by the more high-minded critics. And now I gotta say, as a Westerner, the fact that he's so popular surprises me because I would figure the Chinese government would suppress artists who would dare to say that there's urban disillusionment or who are critical of society at all. Well, he's not really politically provocative. He's not advocating. <laughs> he's just satirizing the things that he doesn't, you know, like. Uh, you know, some of his writings are politically provocative, but not all of them. And actually, the sense I get is, this is why Feng Xiaogang and Wang Shuo were so successful. These guys were really good at skewering the crazy contradictions and problems in Chinese society, but with just enough hip detachment that it didn't feel threatening to censors. And that was the magic touch the studios wanted for The Dream Factory. The movie Fung eventually made contains the germ of the studio's elevator pitch. It is about unemployed workers, but with a twist that comes straight from one of Wang Shuo's short stories. The main character, named Yao Yan, lays it out in voiceover right during the opening credits. Yao says he's an actor with, quote, little chance to act and that he's joined forces with a screenwriter, an assistant director, and a prop maker, all also unemployed, to launch a new company in Beijing that provides a valuable service to help people briefly experience the life they dream of. And then the heart of the film is really made up of a series of vignettes in which various people from all walks of life knock on the door of this company 
and they want, they all each have their own dream. And you know, you have a bookstore owner who wants to be Patton, the iconic military general. Yo, go on, go, yes, sir. So he, they create this elaborate war film type set for him to be Patton for a day. Uh, you have a, a cook who can't keep a secret, and so he arranges for a medieval Chinese torture session so he can learn about loyalty and heroism and how to keep a secret. And there's about seven of these vignettes that make up the film, and each one is basically the wish fulfillment of people from all different walks of life in Chinese society. So are you getting it? Feng Xiaogang, who was asked to rescue a floundering Chinese movie industry that had been laying off film people, made a movie about laid-off film people who do what film people do. Create dream worlds. Oh, absolutely. This is like, it's like a meta-cinema. It is a, a film about the survival, the livelihood of film industry. And Yingshu says it's also a sly commentary about the way movies tend to warp our idea of what to expect from reality, our ability to discern big screen dreams from actual life. Take that vignette about the cook who wants to keep a secret under torture, and who, by the way, totally reveals his secret within like five seconds, along with other terrible secrets, like the fact that he puts MSG in his food. So this is a, one of the most frequent trope in Chinese films during Mao's era, which depicts the pioneering revolutionaries. So you will have these heroes and heroines who are captured by the enemies, right? They are put through all these torture, and they're supposed to reveal, you know, secrets. And of course, these heroes and heroines, they never really budge under these kind of physical um, torment. So the joke really is, okay, are these heroes real? Can you really sustain these kind of uh, physical torture? That's the joke. Are they real? Is it possible? This movie says, not really. Which, at a moment when China was trying to move on from its Maoist past, feels like a statement, right? That whole revolutionary myth was kind of an impossible dream. But then what, according to this film, is a sensible dream? The real dream, the most relevant dream that the Chinese people had was uh, having a place of their own, you know, having, having an apartment. That's Maggie Lee. She is the chief Asia film critic for Variety. And she says in the old days, workers were often given housing attached to state-owned factories where they worked. But in the new economy the government was shutting those factories down. So once the factories closed, the dormitories were also kind of like torn down and resold to develop property. So like finding your own place to stay and owning your own home became like a, a thing, literally. Which makes the film's climax, that sudden turn from cool comedy to bittersweet weepy that puzzled me when I first watched this flick, make a lot more sense. <laughs> In that vignette, the movie's main characters come upon a guy crying in a hospital waiting room and learn his wife is dying of cancer. The doctor has told him to just make her last days comfortable at home, but the couple haven't been able to find a home together. He lives apart from her in a dorm room with roommates. And you can probably guess what our heroes do. The film starts with lots of um, 
you know, deliberately unrealistic fantasies that they were creating for their clients. But at the end, gr the greatest service that they could provide in this film was to actually give them a home. And, and I think that's the real dream. That's the dream at the end of the film. So here was a movie that seemed to have everything. Goofy comedy, sharp satire, nostalgic movie references, touching message about what's important in life. There's also a love story in there. It was designed to be a hit. And it was that. And a lot more. The Dream Factory changes China's whole film paradigm. Coming up in just a minute, stay with us. Mubi is a curated streaming service, production company, and film distributor. A place to discover, discuss, and celebrate beautiful cinema. Every day, Mubi premieres a new film, each one thoughtfully handpicked by our team of curators. From brand new work by emerging filmmakers to masterpieces by cinema's greatest icons, there is always something new to uncover on the platform. Throughout this first season of the podcast, our online film magazine Notebook is publishing a complimentary piece alongside each episode in a series called Mubi Podcast Expanded. This week, we have an article by film professor Ying Zhu, building on her commentary featured in this episode about the Dream Factory and about Chinese New Year films. So finish this episode, then check out Ying Zhu's article on The Notebook at mubi.com slash notebook. And of course, to stream the best of cinema, just head over to mubi.com to start watching. So it's 1997, The Dream Factory, China's first holiday season film is about to come out. And according to Michael Berry, Feng Xiaogang was pretty sure this was gonna be something special. This was the first film in Chinese film history where the director did not take a flat fee for his directing job and instead negotiated a share of the profits from the box office. So that also kind of speaks to the faith that he and the producers had that this would be you know, a, a massive hit. Which on first blush, I have to say, showed a lot of cojones. Because remember how hard it was for me to sort of understand this film? Turns out, it wasn't necessarily easy for a lot of Chinese people either. See, according to Variety's Maggie Lee, the Dream Factory wasn't like the holiday comedies Hong Kong had been releasing for years. With the Hong Kong, like Lunar New Year films, uh, there's actually a lot more slapstick. And the reason for that is because the Hong Kong is a very international film market and they make a lot of the money by selling these films all over the world, like, you know, to Asian countries as well as to sort of a Chinese speaking communities in North and sometimes even South America. So that's why they were actually probably very calculating doing a lot of slapstick. Hong Kong, in other words, had been going the Harpo Marx route. Everybody speaks slapstick. While the Dream Factory is full-on Groucho. What was uh, unique about Feng Xiaogang's style throughout his, his whole career is that he's a born and bred Beijinger, and the Mandarin that people speak in the, his films often used Beijing dialects, which is actually quite different from Putonghua, which is like the, the official standard Chinese that everybody in China can understand. They're rolling the tongue so much that unless you're a northerner, like even you ask a someone from Taiwan, they wouldn't be able to like hear everything clearly. 
And his humor is extremely Northern style. He makes all sorts of references, not just to like the topical things in China, but also it's very Beijing local things, which, you know, I regret to say I don't even get so much. But then this brings up the obvious question, which is how did these movies become such gigantic hits if they're so specific that, you know, sometimes people can't even understand what's being said? Because in China, um, all the films come with English and Chinese subtitles. Oh, wow. And that's why Chinese people, people in China are much more open to foreign films than, say, Americans, because they grew up watching everything on subtitles. So it would be almost like if in America, if a movie was made in the South and you had it sort of subtitled in like standard English or something like that. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. (laughs) But people still got it. The, The jokes, I guess, still translated. Well, I think first of all, it's about how you watch a movie and it's like viewing habits and what people expect from a movie. Cause I think in, for Hollywood movies, for American audience, comedy is something that you have to laugh out loud. But for Feng Xiaogang's films, they're never films that you watch and you laugh out loud. It's more like, you know, the situation is kind of, you know, somewhere between reality and, and ridiculous. And, and the characters are kind of memorable in the sense that they're kind of interesting people. So, so that's the kind of humor that he sells. And I think the Chinese audience is okay with that. Yeah, starting with The Dream Factory, it was pretty clear audiences were more than okay with Feng Xiaogang movies. You know, I think the box office in China was about 30 million RMB, which at the time was a massive success. Since that time, of course, box office numbers have exponentially increased and they break their own records every, not even every year, but every couple of months. But this is really kind of a forebearer of what is to come. And Feng Xiaogang, once that transition takes place, Feng Xiaogang is very much riding that wave and making a series of films that are one after another, more and more popular, more and more successful. That is an understatement. After The Dream Factory, Fung became the king of the holiday movie, churning out annual hits that earn more and more cash. In and outside China, he's often called the Chinese Spielberg. Actually, around that time, I was probably in grad school in New York at Columbia University, and I distinctly remember every Chinese New Year the Chinese Student and Scholars Association would rent out one of the largest halls on the Columbia campus. And the, the big event of the night was screening the new Feng Xiaogang film. And so I distinctly remember when Be There, Be Square came out, I guess it was ni- probably 1998. It was packed. I mean, thousands of students. There wasn't an like, empty room in the theater. People sitting on the hallway, you know, in the stairs, and the aisles, standing room only. But even for overseas Chinese students, During that period, in the early 90s, Feng Xiaogang's films helped create a sense of community, uh, a sense of home, and watching those films, I think, really soothed a lot of lonely hearts. And actually, Feng probably would have loved the idea of people crowding into a New York theater to watch his films. Because for a guy whose movies are so rooted in hyperlocal language and themes and jokes... He spent a lot of his career trying to expand his audience beyond China's borders, to the West. Chinese Imperial Palace. Two colors, red and gold, red walls, gold roofs. This is a scene from Feng's 2001 film, Big Shot's Funeral. It's about an American director in China trying to remake Bernardo Bertolucci's Oscar-winning movie, The Last Emperor. Playing the director, none other than Donald Sutherland. You see, when Bertolucci made his film about the emperor, 
He empathized with the guy, treated him like he was an ordinary human being. But mostly, I think he did it because he knew that that angle would appeal to Western audiences and pretty much guarantee the film's success. You know, make money? Sutherland's character wants to try and break down preconceptions between cultures by showing China's final emperor the way Chinese people see him. It's a theme dear to Feng's heart. He's always been revisiting this relationship between China and the U.S. through his films, more so than perhaps any other contemporary Chinese filmmaker. I think the first film that he ever wrote the screenplay for was called Da Saba, The Great Goodbye, and that was about someone left behind in China after his spouse slash girlfriend immigrated to America. And ever since that time, he's continually returned to America. So a Beijing or a New York shot on location in New York, uh, Be There, Be Square shot on location in Los Angeles. He wants his films to go global. He wants audiences in America and Europe and in other markets to watch these films. A tragedy, tragedy. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just yeah. love you, kiddo. I love you, But they've never quite broken through. And not, Barry says, just because of Fung's very Chinese sensibility. I think that's one barrier. The bigger barrier is simply that Chinese audiences are much more open to international films. You look at the top 10 films in the Chinese box office over the last 10 or 20 years, and you will see an inundation of international or non-Chinese films. Look at America. Look at the American box office over the last 20 years in the top 10. It's quite a rarity to see even one of those be a non-English language film. But here's the thing. Increasingly, for Chinese filmmakers, there may be no point in bothering to crack the overseas market. Because mainland China, especially during the holiday film season that the Dream Factory inaugurated, has become market enough. Today, it loosely encompasses several weeks. It can start around Christmas time and goes through the Lunar New Year celebration itself. And the cash movies make after launching in that window is hard to overstate. Some of the big New Year's films that have performed very well can easily reach 400 million, 500 million, some even over six or 700 million US dollars in box office in the Chinese market. And what's phenomenal about that is what it means to the Hollywood enterprise in China. Because for a Hollywood film to make that kind of money, you know, we're talking about getting, once you start closing in on the so-called billion dollar club, usually for Hollywood, that means you're looking at Terminator or Avengers or big franchise films with often a hundred to two hundred million dollar budget to make these films. And they need not only the two hundred million dollar budget, but they need the global market to do that kind of business. They need China, they need Europe, they need Southeast Asia, they need all of these different markets. China can do that kind of business and make those kind of numbers, say with a twenty million dollar budget, and they do that with one market, the China market. This year, a New Year movie called The 800 grossed half a billion dollars in China in six days. The biggest box office hit in the world so far this year, over $820 million, is another New Year film called Hi Mom. In March, it blew past Wonder Woman to become the highest grossing film ever made by a solo female director. Again, that's from ticket sales in China alone. I started off this episode telling you I wanted to understand films like The Dream Factory, but I may never entirely understand. And the fact is, more and more, China doesn't really need me to.
And that's the movie podcast for this season. It has been my total privilege to tell you the stories of these international movies for the last few weeks. If this is the first episode you dipped into, go back and check out the ones that came before. We hit a movie from almost every continent and they're all mind blowing, if I do say so myself. Also, be sure to follow us so you don't miss our second season, which we're brewing up for you as we speak. Expect more great stories about cool movies. Meanwhile, the movie podcast is hosted, written, and cut by me, Rico Galliano. Jackson Musker is our booking producer. Our engineer was Andy Carson, mastering by Stephen Colon. Martin Ostwick composed and performed the music. Thanks this week to Michael Oyang, Zoe Jung, and especially Karina Lesser. The show is executive produced by me, along with John Baranachea, F.A. Cecharel, Daniel Kassman, and Michael Taka for Mubi. Two last things. If you are digging the show, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. It'll make it easier for others to find us. Also, tweet about us, Instagram about us, tell your pets about us. And to stream an ever-changing collection of carefully hand-picked films from iconic directors to emerging auteurs, subscribe to Mubi at Mubi.com. Have a great summer. I hope you get a chance to see the whole wide world in person as well as on screen. Bon voyage. Bon voyage.